always center that conversation around what are you trying to achieve? What does success look like for you? What are your business pain points? What are your challenges? And let's really take it from there. You're listening to Digital Surfing, the podcast that dives into successes and failures of digital leaders around the world. I'm your host, Darren Smith, and today our guest is MJ Khan, who is the Group Digital Platforms Manager at Sassel, an international integrated energy and chemicals company. Some of the things that we talk about today is how MJ grew this LinkedIn profile of Sassel to be the largest profile in Southern Africa. We talk about future and the copyright issues that we may face in that future. We also talk about deep fakes and how that is going to cause issues in the future. And then we go deep into talk about stakeholder management, in particular where you're working for large companies and how you manage all those different cooks in the kitchen. Let's get into surfing with MJ. MJ, welcome to the podcast there. Great to have you on the show. Uh, fantastic to be here, Darren. Thanks so much for inviting me. Right. So the first question I have is, I suspect MJ is not your real name. So what is your real name? Unless you know you are Michael Jackson, but but uh, what 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 is the real name and how did it come about uh, that you now MJ? Uh, I like to keep people guessing. So you know, to one person I'll be Michael Jackson, to the next person I'll be Montel Jordan, and then to the third person I'll be Mila Jovovich. You know, so just making sure that I, I spread it around. But my real name is Muhammad Junaid. And the MJ part sort of comes from lecturing. So when I used to be a lecturer, some of my classes had hundreds of students. And I recognized it was hard for some of them to remember my name. So I used to just introduce myself by my initials. So every year it was just MJ. About 15 years later, and it just stuck to the point where I think even on my access card at work and my email address, it says MJ Khan. And I'd be surprised if most of my colleagues actually knew my name. So my real name is Mohammed Junaid, but everyone knows me as MJ. You know, I had a colleague once, I booked a, a flight for her. I thought her name was Jess and she got to the airport and her name was actually Jessica and they wouldn't let her board, board the flight. <laughs> so I hope that doesn't happen to you. Uh, no, no, no. Given this brown face and this beard, when it comes to airports, no, it's always the passport name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you want to just uh, start off with just giving a bit of uh, overview, background, career, where, where have you been and where are you now? Sure. No, it's, it's, it's been a fantastic sort of, I wouldn't really necessarily call it a career, but just a journey so, so far. I cut my teeth in community radio. So I did my first radio ad in 2001. From there, I moved on to print advertising. And I very much spent a lot of time in classical advertising for perhaps the first eight or nine years uh, of my career. Within that time, at the same time, I was doing a lot of lecturing and I really enjoyed that. I enjoy teaching, sharing, and just sort of balancing the, the practical nature of advertising and marketing with the, the theory, the academic part of it. In about 2009 or so, I transitioned fully into digital. And then from that point on, it was sort of jumping around, you know, agencies to agencies. I spent some time at what was then the largest independent digital agency in Africa, Quirk. I was head of social. I spent some time with TBWA an agency that has now just blown up and become VML, Ogilvy and Mather. So lots of great experience with, with some large networks as well as some boutiques. And then in about 2014, I came a little disillusioned with uh, some of the agency, you know, agency life really. You know, I think I had a good innings there, but I wanted to make the jump over to corporate. And, you know, I was lucky there was an opportunity at Sassel. And for me, it meant a lot. 
because I had spent the previous three years at different agencies working on the SASOL uh, digital framework and things like that. So when there was an opportunity to actually go in and get get that experience in the organization, I jumped at it. And yeah, I've been there ever since. Uh, it's my first corporate job, like proper, proper corporate job. And I've been there since October 2014 and loving every moment, still learning something new every single week. I kind of went the other way around. Eh? I um, spent 11 years in corporate and then went, and then went to agency. Along this uh, kind of journey, has anybody ever told you something that's really profound that's then changed the way you think about things thereafter in your career or journey? Wow, going with the deep stuff. I love that. So yeah, I think one thing, and this is an example that I, I like to share a lot when I'm speaking and things like that, is I remember coming out of the second Twilight movie. I think this was around 2009 or 2010, Twilight New Moon. And I was really complaining about it, like nonstop, almost like an irritating cinema goer, you know? So I went to a few friends and I was just moaning and moaning about the movie because I really disliked the movie. I, I thought it was awful and terrible and a complete waste of my time. And a friend just like looked at me as I was in the middle of my diatribe. And he's like, the reason you don't like it is because you're not the target market. And that has really struck with me. You know, the reason I didn't like it is just because I'm not the target market. And it's helped me in my career today because I keep having to check myself. You know, if I'm going to review something, if I'm going to dismiss it or shoot it down or change it, I always check, you know, am I just doing this because I'm not the target market? And it's okay not to be the target market, but to what extent do you then censor or do you then hold back in terms of your own bias when you know it's not meant for you? So yeah, that's something that really stood out. You know, the reason I didn't like Twilight was simply because I wasn't the target market and I, I needed to be okay with that. Yeah, I, mean, I think that makes two of us now. I'm not a fan of that really, that guy that has absolutely no tan whatsoever. <laughs> but yeah, I see that often in the industry in, and quite a bit actually on social media where the person creating the content for social is creating it for their own interest and forgetting the person that we're trying to engage with, especially when we're in business to business content, some of the content I see is almost condescending to the people they're targeting. Because if you're target, targeting a CMO or a CTO or you know somebody that's on a board, executive level person, and you give in five tips to ABC or whatever, you know, they're just not going to, if they don't know those tips already, they shouldn't be in the CTO, CMO role, whatever the role they're in, right? A hundred percent. And that really rings true. You know, I think there's such an obsession with content. So you have a lot of content marketing, you have a lot of push within content. And the challenge with that is people often neglect context, which is so much more significant. And just, I guess, maybe something else I'll share around a quote I had that was really profound. And this was maybe about seven or eight years ago. It's from a Swiss philosopher named Alain de Baton. And he says, most of what makes a book good is that you're reading it at the right moment for you. And that for me really brings home that idea of context, you know? And I think we've sort of started evangelizing and started putting content up on a pedestal and it comes back to that context. So your content might be good, but you're pitching it at the completely wrong level at the wrong time and at the wrong person. And, and we see this so often with a lot of B2B marketing. And I guess, you know, while we're talking about B2B marketing, which I'm quite passionate about, the other thing we see as well is this complete, often a disregard for the creative side of B2B marketing. It's almost as if people believe that if you're doing B2C marketing, then it needs to be creative, it needs to be fun, it needs to be out there. And B2B marketing by default is some boring sort of thing, which is really problematic as well. I mean, there's a guy by the name of Kramer in 2014 who, who famously said, 
there's no B2B and B2B, uh, B2C and B2B. It's just human to human. And I really like that. And I think that's something that, that I'm sort of trying to pride myself on is how do we break away from that status quo of B2B being the stiff, starchy, boring stuff and B2C being where all the creativity and the woman fuzzies happen. Mm, I couldn't agree more with you. I absolutely love what you're saying there. So let's move on to the challenges that you've seen in the digital industry at the moment. Like if you were to sum up just you know, one or two of those challenges, what do you think the, the industry is grappling with at the moment? Geez, I, I guess one of the things about the industry as well is uh, 10 years ago, you could be pretty much a know-it-all, right? You could have a good grasp of, or, or rather a, a working level grasp of search engine optimization and customer relationship management, or whatever it is, all the different disciplines that make up digital marketing. And now more than ever, because it, the depth is so crazy, that you have to really sort of choose your lane and understand where it is that you see value, where it is that you see the gaps and where it is that you understand the space and where you sort of leave behind. So when we talk about the industry specifically, and, and let me qualify that, right? Not necessarily the industry that I'm in, which, which is petrochemical, but within digital and digital communication, there's a lot that I've noticed over the last few years that I'm hoping that, you know, we can start, start to address. And I think one of the things is, is definitely that obsession with gimmicks. So whether the gimmicks are mostly tech-based, so we've seen this recently with the rise of augmented reality and how that became this really great gimmick, where are people applying a lot of the times the marketing fundamentals to that gimmick? So AR is AR is AR, tech is tech is tech, and it's cool, but how do you bring it back home? And how do you make sure that you understand it and try not to dilute your brand? Because, you know, there's a new social media platform that pops up every six months, and then all of a sudden, all the old ones seem like old so just because TikTok's really blowing up, is that reason enough to be on TikTok just because it's got a big user base? Or do you have a, a compelling brand proposition as to why you're on that platform? And I think that for me is something I'm very wary of. And I'm seeing this in cycles. A few years ago, you would have noticed like a lot of people just wanted an app for everything. And all the conversations were, can we build an app? Can we build an app? And often it's just driven by this idea of this shiny tech. And we don't really go back and say, well, what are we going to do with this app? Are people going to actually use the app? Is it going to be valuable? Is it going to serve some specific need or solve a problem? As opposed to we need an app because we think an app is cool. So for me, I think that that's definitely a challenge that the, the industry is tackling in, in various ways. And I'm also noticing we are increasingly headed towards quite a slippery slope when it comes to things like copyright, intellectual property. I mean, the rise of TikTok is great, right? It's a fantastic platform. But within TikTok as well, you're also noticing a lot of the smaller brands uh, not really having a regard for copyright or regard for intellectual property because putting it aside so that it can be trendy, putting it aside so that you, know, you can jump on a trend or you can use a certain sample of a song or whatever. And I think those lines are blurred, but quite quickly, the rights holders are going to start jumping in and I think it's going to become quite messy. Yeah, I've seen this copyright thing evolved just in the you know static image world there's somebody innocently goes and searches google's images finds an image to use on a social media post or blog post and 
I have personally received legal letters then from the likes of the big news agencies around the world that says, oh, this is our image. You can't use it. And because you have used it, you now need to pay us. It almost feels like they are being unethical because I mean, it was an innocent mistake. A better, better solution would have been, hey, you've used it. Please take it down. Uh, and if you don't want to take it down, then buy it. But don't send me an invoice when I didn't even know that I was accidentally using it. Definitely. I guess it's the nature of that industry, right? If they don't get uh, the money, they don't get paid. So it's very commission-driven, which drives that problematic behavior as well. Well, problematic for some people, you know, I don't want to qualify for everyone. For others, it might make a lot of sense. And I think what you're also alluding to is something that we've seen in the past as well, right? So brands would go online and they would find an appropriate image or they would innocently take an image of a sports personality or whatever it is. And maybe they just want to congratulate them because they've done something great. And we see it come up over and over again. I mean, with the death of a celebrity, you know, trying to understand when do you as a brand get involved? And when you're getting involved, you know, do you have a credible link to that celebrity? Are you adding something meaningfully to the conversation? Or are you just jumping on a trend to be blunt as that? And like previously, you'd have where there's a sports board who would monitor that and realize, hey, there's commercial value here. Are you eroding that? Therefore, you need to pay us. And brands sort of started to understand that in the social space as a lot of the brands started maturing in social media, especially in terms of using the platforms. But now we're starting to see, I wouldn't call it a regression, but we're starting to see people leaning more towards being more, let's just say, flaunting copyright a lot more. I mean, if you think about who owns the copyright to a GIF from a movie or something like that, you know, and if you're using it uh, as a brand, do you have the right to use it? So there's lots of these ethical conversations that are coming up. And I think that's one of the challenges of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about general business communication, right? So what we've seen with people working from home, with people having Zoom or Microsoft Teams exhaustion, burnout from it, the growth of asynchronous communication, and in particular, video communication being in an asynchronous manner. Now, before we start recording today, we're talking about one of the things that you wish you had started using earlier was video. How are you using video and why do you wish you had started using it earlier? So this goes back about five years. I was reflecting on my role in the organization and I'm really lucky. So I work for um, Sassol. And for those who don't know, Sassol is a global energy and chemicals company with a presence in 23 countries and headquartered in South Africa. And it's been a really great ride at Sassol. And what I was trying to figure out back then in 2015 was almost like I was drawing a little circle, right? So why do I control in terms of what's my portfolio, what's my responsibilities, my profile, and my KPIs? Like, like what, what is in my control? And then what's in my influence? So out of my control, but I can definitely guide people in certain areas. So an example of that would be in my control is the online, the digital platforms, the social media, the channels, and the campaigns. Out of my control would be something like uh, customer care within a certain business unit. So I wouldn't control that, but I could influence colleagues in terms of communication, best practice, tone. They are changing the way we would communicate with customers on different platforms. And and then I sort of realized, okay, cool. So I've got my control. I've got my influence. How do I scale this? And for a long time, I thought the only way to scale control and influence was through rank, right? So through promotion, through climbing up the ladder a little bit, and then that would be the way. But I soon realized that I didn't need to go through that journey. I could be really influential and have a lot of influence 
but by just making sure that I was accessible, that I was adding value, I was educating, I was upskilling, and that I was positioning myself as that go-to person. So with that in mind, what I really hoped I would have done back then is just done a lot more recordings because a recording is a great way for you to scale your presence, right? So I can't be everywhere at once, but if I record a whole bunch of different videos and different topics that, and all of them are valuable and they all get shared, that's one way for me to scale up my influence. So yeah, so I guess that for me is one of the regrets is I should have started that earlier. And I'm hoping now I'm trying to bridge that gap a lot more. So I'm doing a lot more internal recordings. Uh, we're packaging a lot more types of content and we're being very focused and almost very niche in the types of topics I'm covering. So it's not this sort of general approach anymore. Mm-hmm. So now you just got to be careful about the copyright of those videos, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing. So, so look, I mean, I'm quite uh, risk of us. When it comes to, to copyrights and stuff like that, just I'm, I'm the guy that'll use Unsplash, get a copyright free image and then credit the artist and the photographer. I'm sort of on that sort of vibe. So I, so I like that. And it's not always the person that everybody wants to engage with because sometimes it's so much easier to do the easy thing. You know, it's just easy to go and do the dance challenge to Jerusalem and not just hold back and wait just because, you know, you don't own the rights to that song, you know? So often you might be seen as the party pooper, but I do think because I'm quite risk averse, it does help as well. It means that just the risk profile is lowered Mm. and, you know, we'll run our race at our pace. We don't need to look across the fence and see what others are doing and try and mimic that. Yeah, great advice. So I want to double click there on Sassel in particular. I mean, as you were saying, it's a large organization. You know, when you're working on big projects like launching a website or something like that, you must have a ton of stakeholders. How do you go about managing stakeholders like that because that's well known saying too many cooks spoil the broth there's got to be so many people with different opinions on what they want how they want it you've got your opinions how do you manage all of that Jeez, yeah it is a balancing act right and and when people ask me to define my job or to explain somewhat what i do i always tell them i balance the needs of my internal stakeholders with the wants of my external stakeholders and that for me is really important to have that mindset so with the website right now, and we're going through quite a big refresh, and as you can imagine, lots and lots of stakeholders. So there's some level of an understanding, like, well, what do you want to get out of it? What are your objectives? What are you hoping to get? What's that other feedback? You know, can we make things better? But at the same time, it's that balance as well between us as group communication, also being a little prescriptive, having our own standards that are fair, that are transparent, that can be held up to scrutiny, and then understanding what stakeholders need. And I find Uh, Our approach and what really works a lot is we tend to give more and really go and say, cool, we want to support you. Here's a few things we've been thinking. Let's build it together. Is this aligned to your objectives? And also from our side as well is to always center that conversation around what are you trying to achieve? What does success look like for you? What are your business pain points? What are your challenges? And let's really take it from there. Like, why do you need this website? And I think often we we sometimes we don't interrogate the, the objectives too much there's sometimes it's very easy to say we need an app and then you fixate on the channel or you fixate on the platform and then you don't really go back and say but what what do you actually need like what's that pain point what's that challenge or what's that business problem that you have that you're trying to address and and what's important for me as well and my team is that when we have these conversations where we don't just have them as communication specialists and marketing specialists we pride ourselves on actually understanding the business so my entire team, like we read the annual integrated reports, we, we speak to business, not just 
within our verticals. We don't just speak to comms people or marketing people. Like we'll get into business, into operations. We'll try and understand. So what's happening? What's really happening on the ground? And then whenever we propose something, it's not coming out of the blue just because we Googled best practice and we said, thou shalt do this. It's because we've considered the reality of the situation. We've considered the business aspect of it. And then from there, we add the communication lens on top of it. So talking about you know, team really understanding the industry, the markets, the people you're trying to target, is this what's led to that massive following you have on LinkedIn or how did you achieve this gigantic following? A LinkedIn profile. I am so proud of that. So, so we currently have the largest LinkedIn page in Southern Africa of any corporates by far. And I think for me, LinkedIn, it has been a journey, you know, and it has been this constant questioning of assumptions, constant reflection. So when I started with the LinkedIn page all those years ago, you go in with certain assumptions, right? Like you go into the status quo. So, so LinkedIn is uh, a business platform. Therefore, there's a certain expectation in terms of how you conduct yourself. There's a certain expectation from a brand production and values perspective, you know, and, and that would translate into me looking to only use high resolution images. And as I sort of got more embedded in the organization, as I understood more like what I was really trying to achieve. And I was to, to celebrate my colleagues, to celebrate the organization, to make the organization seem very human friendly. I realized that I was actually putting up all these barriers myself. Sort of if you insist on having a high resolution image, what you do then is you then alienate and you discard all of the other great content just because it doesn't fit this one arbitrary brand standard that you put for yourself. So as a simple example of that is if a colleague was doing something quite cool, like hosting a workshop or um, some form of recognition or whatever, and they took a picture on their cell phone, for me, what I realized and what I came to realize was it was more important that I publish that, I celebrate my colleague, uh, I make them feel good, then say, now nah, this picture quality isn't that great. We're not going to use it. So a lot of that is my own maturation as I sort of matured in my role as I started to understand more and more how I wanted to chart and direct the Sassel brand. A lot of it as well is just over time, yeah, just keeping on like humanizing the brand, you know, like positioning ourselves to say that, you know, we're just a company. We're not perfect because when you tell the world you're perfect and you put yourself up on the pedestal, it's so much easier to throw rocks at it. And if there's anything that happens, whether it's a project that gets delayed or budget overruns or whatever it is, people are a lot more harsher with you because you created that expectation. You put yourself up there. But, but if you position yourself as an organization that's striving, that's innovating to be a little bit better tomorrow, that's vulnerable, you're going to get a lot more meaningful interaction, a lot more affinity, and a lot more people wanting to connect with you. And I found that for us has been really great. The other thing I really like about our LinkedIn presence as well is we've completely democratized the way we profile people. Like, sure, you know, we'd love to profile our executives, but I'm not hung up on just celebrating someone because they're in a senior position. I honestly believe that if you work for the company, and there's 29,000 of us, if you work for the company, that's something remarkable and we can celebrate you. So it's also about celebrating everyone, no matter what they do. I mean, we come from a very strong engineering and science background, but we made up of four leaders in HR and supply chain and social investment. And each one of those people have a great story to tell and is worth celebrating. So I think that sort of mindset has really helped us grow the LinkedIn page. In fact, yeah, we, we don't use paid media and stuff to grow the page. Occasionally, we'll, we'll promote a piece of content if it's a campaign, but that growth is pretty much organic. And tell me, are the majority of the followers people looking to be employed by Sasol or is it potential customers? Like if you were to analyze that following base, what's it made up of? 
It really is a mix, hey? It really is a mix. So there are some people who follow Sassel for potential opportunities, and that's great, right? So that means that it allows us and enables and empowers us to put up a lot of employer value proposition content, whether it's accreditation by, by global rankings or just talking about the benefits of being at the company. So that sort of content is there, vacancy stuff is there, but, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that dominates. I think we've got quite an eclectic stakeholder base on our LinkedIn page. And we try and service them as much as we can. So we've got some people who would follow us on LinkedIn for our thought leadership when it comes to things like, say, for example, fuel. And like I'm really blessed as well because we've got some of the brightest fuel engineers in South Africa. And, you know, I'll speak to them and I'll say, okay, cool. Tell me, what's the difference? And let's demystify, you know, octane, for example, like 93 versus 95. Can you give us a story? Like what should someone fill in? So we offer a lot of value for that sort of stakeholder. Then there's another type of stakeholder who will follow us for our B2B content, which is a bit more niche, but they would follow us for that community as well. You know, so within our operations that we have globally, we've got large fence line communities, host communities around our operations. So they also want to know what's happening with with the company, what's the updates. Then there's uh, institutional shareholders, investors. So yeah, it's, it's quite a broad range of stakeholders. It's not just like simply customers or something like that. And, and we try to cater for everyone. And the way we do that really is by having an always-on content strategy that is broad enough to cover the organization, but at the same time, being very methodical and intentional and strategic about our targeting with our campaigns. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, like designing some sort of content calendar for that must take quite an effort because you need to appeal to so many different audiences, right? hundred percent. And I think for us as well, the challenge is always internally to embed what we're trying to achieve with digital because digital is so different to traditional, right? And with traditional, it was largely, you know, if you're going to pay for a TV spot, or you're going to buy a spot in a magazine, you'd want to monopolize that message completely because you're paying for it. Whereas now, with our following and we've been able to grow this huge community, we don't pay every time we want to publish, which means we can do a few things. Number one, we don't have to monopolize the message. You know, we're not driven by the sort of spend framework to say, you know, because it's our platform, we have to just talk about us. So it allows us to celebrate beneficiaries, allows us to celebrate partners, and then benefit from being in their platforms, their networks. So that's number one. And number two, it also allows us to do a lot more long-term storytelling. And that's really one of the things I'm trying really hard to embed in the organization. And it's nothing that happens overnight, you know, it's about educating colleagues to say, let's move away from event thinking, where you sort of have these fireworks and all of this focuses on one big event, and then everything drops down and then you start working towards the next event. Let's start this long-term narrative building and this golden thread sort of thing, where you're telling stories over time. And you're not just, you know, talking about things at the end of it. You are taking people throughout that entire journey. So if there's an application process, what does that look like? You know, after the program has launched, going back, finding out, is this something successful? Is this something we need to tweak? And I guess it goes back to what I said earlier about being vulnerable. So if you're vulnerable, you can go back and if you've launched a program and if it wasn't that successful, you can be very honest and frank on social media and say, we launched this, we realized there was still a gap. Therefore, this is what we're doing. This is how we're learning. And that sort of content really endears us to our audience, I found. You've provided some great tips there for people that want to try and replicate what you've done. So thanks for that. So just to end off for today, I want to uh, kind of 
go and get your reflections and thoughts on what does the next five years look like? What's the future looking like? That's a very broad question. So if we try and put that time frame on it, five years or so, like what are we going to be seeing in particular around digital and CRM and social and, and so on? Yeah, geez, five years, a long time. But I think, you know, for me as well, it's always important that as much as we can appreciate technological advancement, we, we should also consider our cultural latency, which is sort of sometimes, you know, us being slow to change. And we see this with many industries, right? We will see this with e-commerce. So you might have a lot of e-commerce and, and, and online retailer platforms, but for a lot of people, they still will subscribe to the old Boppy model, which is uh, browse online, but purchase in store. So I think uh, that for me is always very sobering is why are you looking at the future and, and why are you trying to predict trends and things like that to also recognize what that cultural latency looks like. But I'll tell you what I am a bit concerned about, and that is really the rise of deep fakes. I think that there's going to be increased privacy concerns. There's going to be a lot more scams coming out. And deep fakes also allow for fake news to thrive because, I mean, if you can pull off a good deep fake, you could convince a lot of people of what you're trying to do. So I think that's going to be a concern. So there will be a greater need, I believe, for uh, authentication, a greater need for more verification touch points, you know, to prove that someone is who they say they are. So I think that that might be a, a concern that we're going to have. But on the bright side and, and the silver lining and rather the more positive side of what I think is going to happen, and it's already been happening. So uh, you know, for those who listen to this and think, oh, but this is old news, I think it's less about it happening and more about the scale at which it's going to happen. And I really think, especially in markets like South Africa, voice search is going to become so much bigger. And uh, the brands that can adapt for voice search and can capitalize on voice search and can make a meaningful difference within that realm, whether it's sort of being profiled better on Google Assistant or whatever it is, I think they are going to be better equipped. And if they can knock out good voice search that then integrates with an e-commerce platform or some form of customer touch point, I think those are the brands that are going to do really well. Yeah, you rightly say it, like lots of it has been said about voice search already, but then you look at something like search integrated into maps. And I'm so surprised constantly when I'm looking for service providers just to do stuff around my home, how many don't even have a presence on maps so I can find <laughs> the nearest person to me. It's such a simple thing. And now that's, you're going to have maps. You just got to get that right first. And then voice is going to play an increasingly important part in that. 100%. And I think it's because for a lot of small businesses, you know, they would focus on a platform like Instagram and they would neglect the, the Google suite, right? So you need to be considering Google locations. You need to be considering Google My Business. You need to make sure that, especially if you offer a service that's within a physical location, that that's optimized. So within our retail space, about six years ago, we invested heavily from a thought process in terms of how do we optimize all our retail sites? And first was also take a step back and say, it's not necessarily getting the people who search for Sassel. We definitely want to rank up there. But if people are searching for petrol, because let's face it, right? If, you're, if your tank is on reserve, a lot of the time, loyalty goes out the window, right? Because desperation will kick in. And then you just want, you know, I want a petrol station near me. Or just say on a long trip and you, you need to use the loo or whatever it is. So what we did is as much as we spent a little bit of time and effort making sure that we were optimizing uh, all the satchel related search, we spent a lot of time optimizing for general petal search. And, you know, we were able to see quite a significant growth in the amount of clicks where people were searching for petrol near me and, and satchel was outranking competitors and they were coming through to the satchel. 
So things like that, I think sometimes these are the hygiene factors that get neglected because, you know, people will sometimes think, okay, if I've got Instagram, I'm cool, I'm done. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I've seen a few times looking at search engine strategies that have been implemented where the people that have been involved have optimized for the product and haven't thought about the use case of the challenge, the pain point. That's actually greater search volume because they don't know the product exists. They just have this problem like you know, I need petrol, I need the toilet. Mm. They, they're not searching for the, the, the end product. And I, I see that all the time when I'm reviewing search strategies that have been implemented. I, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today on digital surfing. I hope that maybe one day I'll have uh, somebody try and do a deep fake of me on, on, on digital surfing. But for now, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. It was uh, been a pleasure having you on the show. This was a fantastic opportunity. Thanks for having me and a great job. I've, I've listened to a whole bunch of the podcasts, really enjoy them, love what you're doing. So keep at it. You've got a huge fan in me. <laughs> Thanks so much.